Here we are at Hebrews 11. I want to read to you verses 13 through 16. It is speaking of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, who were mentioned beginning in verse 8, when it says these. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, and heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Amen and amen. These all died in faith. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob died in faith. Are we going to die in faith? Believing the promises of God that a moment after we die, we shall be in the presence of the Lord in a land that is fairer than day with a city that hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. Amen. We prepare to die in faith by living in faith every day now. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. Understand your Bible. They most definitely did receive the promises. They did not receive the fulfillment of the promises. But it says promises. Do you read your Bible carefully? Make sure we read it carefully. Because the promises were given to Abraham. But he didn't get the fulfillment of them. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, that is, the fulfillment of the promises, but having seen them. How could they see them if they hadn't received them? They had received them, and they saw them afar off. Abraham saw the blessings of God afar off. Jesus would say in John chapter 8 to the Jews, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and he did rejoice. John 8 verse, and verse 56. They saw the promises afar off. Abraham saw Christ afar off. Abraham saw heaven far off. Abraham saw justification by Christ afar off that all the nations of the earth would be blessed by the justifying grace of Jesus Christ, which is how all nations of the earth were blessed through Abraham because Galatians chapter 3 teaches us exactly that. We are not blessed because we send F-16s to Israel. We are blessed because we have the children of God of the New Testament, the Gentile church in favor its cause, and we're justified by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw the promises afar off and were persuaded of them. Are you persuaded of them today? Are you persuaded, convinced in your minds, of the truthfulness and integrity of God's commitment of heaven for us after death and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and a heavenly Jerusalem and a country that is above. Are you persuaded? They were persuaded. And they saw and knew less than you see and know. They were great. They were heroes of the faith. God picks them as heroes of the faith. This is the friend of God we're talking about. 
They saw the promises afar off and were the, the, the fulfillments of them and were persuaded of them. Are you persuaded of everything the Bible says? That it is true. But then, not only do we need to be mentally persuaded, we need to embrace them, which means to love them, as Charlie just prayed, with our heart and our soul. Do you embrace them? This is what I want to live for. This gives me passion. This gives me zeal. This is how I want to live. They were persuaded. They embraced them. This is going to be my life. This is all that matters to me is to be with the Lord Jesus Christ and to go to heaven to be with Him. And then they confessed. They were persuaded. They embraced. Then they confessed. You know what? Since I've embraced the promises of God and since I'm persuaded of them, living in this world is really pitiful. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Do you understand the text? I've tried to explain it to you. Are you persuaded? Or have I not done enough with the Word of God to persuade you? Because your mind is made up by something else? Have you embraced them? It's a choice right now for you and for me to embrace the promises of God. Embrace that one second... After death, I will be in the chariots of God and delivered by angels into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will never lose me. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. As surely as He got you here the first time, He will take you to Himself the second time, except more surely. And so we confess. We confess, you know what? I don't care about this life. I don't care about the things of this world in comparison to the things of the next world. That's what a stranger and a pilgrim does and says. And that's how they get to that place. They look in the Word of God. It declares to them God's promises. They read the promises and are persuaded. Then they embrace the promises to love them and to live by them. And then they say, with those promises in hand, this place is worthless. As Charlie just described Thank you, brother. Verse 14, For they that say such things, that is, those that confess that they are strangers and pilgrims on the earth, they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. They're looking for a better country than the United States of America. You know, when when we as Americans read a passage like this, we live in the greatest nation or country of the earth that we know about. But this is not our home. It doesn't matter that this is the greatest nation or the greatest country in the history of the world in many respects. It is not our home. We seek a better country. Verse 15, And truly, if they, if Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and and Jacob had been mindful, please let the words of God come into your ears and into your hearts and minds. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. That is Mesopotamia. Abraham came from Mesopotamia. Sarah came from Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilization, the place where we, the Garden of Eden was, the beginning of human history. If they had been mindful of it, that is, if they had thought about it and played with it in their minds, 
that Mesopotamia was important to them, that their houses back there were important, that their family back there was important. They might have had opportunity to return, but the verse is all hinging upon the fact if they had been mindful. They weren't mindful. They forgot the junky place. They forgot the people. They forgot the places. They forgot the activities. They forgot the philosophy. They washed it away. They flushed it. And this is what strangers and pilgrims do. They flush the things of this world for the things of the Lord Jesus Christ and His world. Verse 16, But in opposing the fact that they were mindful of Mesopotamia, which they were not, but now they desire a better country, not Mesopotamia, but something far better, that is in heavenly Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. They were mindful and thought about heaven. And we as a church, to reach the higher ground, need to be reminding each other more and more about heaven. Not more and more about how far the Lord has brought us here, but how far the Lord is going to take us when we're there. They desire a better country. That is a heavenly country. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob wanted to go to heaven. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Do you understand the importance of this? When you commit yourself that heaven is more important to you than earth, God takes a special interest in you because you are acting like a true child of His rather than a friend of this world. My favorite passage right here would obviously be 2 Corinthians 6, 14-18 where there are seven promises. I will be their father, they shall be my children. I will dwell in them. I will walk with them. And all of that because we choose, based on the promises of God, to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. That is 2 Corinthians 7, 1 connected to seven promises that go before it in 2 Corinthians 6. Notice here in this text, we have a summary that when we make heaven more important than earth, because this earth is the enemy of God, its people, its places, its practices, its philosophy, the enemy of God. When we make heaven the object of our souls and we embrace heaven, God takes a special interest in us as His children and delights in us As it says here, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. These are the obedient children of God that recognize they're just strangers and pilgrims here. There's so much that can be said. I hope that you understand these four verses very clearly. You need to run your race in front of an audience like this. Because chapter 12, verse 1 says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. We have Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob sitting in the audience watching us run our race. What do you get enamored with in this world? Where do you find your gladness that you shouldn't find? People, places, 
practices, philosophy. What is it about this world? We need to lay it aside and run the race that they ran before us. They ran such a good one, God stuck them here by the Holy Ghost's inspiration in Hebrews 11. And we want to run our race like them. I guess it's probably the fact that I'm getting older, but I want to help prepare all of you for the day you die. And it's to get our affection and our persuasion and our confession established on heaven now. Don't expect me to do the impossible or the nearly impossible and help you do it in the last 24 hours of your life. If I have any say, you're going to be heavily medicated. I'm going to want you to go painlessly and peacefully. And if you're heavily, if you're heavily medicated, I'm not going to be able to do you very much good. Or will your brothers and sisters in here do you very much good? And so we have today. I mean, God told me to preach this sermon to you today. I have a whole outline of higher ground to preach. I want you to be strangers and pilgrims so that God is not ashamed of you and that that city has been prepared for you and you're ready to depart this place and be with the Lord. I want to be ready. I want all of you to be ready. Are you a stranger and a pilgrim like these four that I've mentioned? Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, we're going to mention some women today. You had two women read to you just moments ago. There are women in the Bible that were great women, and Sarah was one of them. Sarah didn't bring any of her family. Sarah didn't bring any of her things. Sarah left. They were nomads for the rest of her poor life. They had no property that they ever owned again. They left Ur of the Chaldeans. Abraham said, I'm leaving. She said, I'm going with you. And together this husband and wife team sought the Lord and sought heaven. So did Rebecca, having never met her husband Isaac. So did Ruth, going to a strange land where she would be a foreigner. She said, stop trying to dissuade me, Naomi. Your people are my people. My people are going to bury themselves. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you get buried, I want to be in that cemetery. I'm through with Moab. I'm through with the languages. I'm through with the school. I'm through with the friends. I'm through with the neighbors. I'm through with all of it. Those were great women. And we have great men. And some of them are listed here in Hebrews chapter 11 for our learning. Okay. This past Thursday was our nation's Thanksgiving Day. Let me tell you a little tiny bit about the pilgrims. And I don't care that they used fish to fertilize their corn for this particular paragraph. I don't care about Squanto. I don't care about any of that. I want you to understand how they got the name Pilgrims. They were Englishmen and English women from England, obviously. And they had chosen to separate themselves from a state church. Most of you cannot even comprehend a state church. You have to go. And you are taxed to support the church. 
Your tax return, the monies you pay to the government, are used to support the church and build its edifices and pay its leadership that are chosen apart from you altogether. A state church. The influences of John Wycliffe and John Huss and John Kelvin and Martin Luther and others had aroused a spirit of revival in England. Baptists were coming out of hiding. Members of the Church of England, which is nothing but a Catholic church with the King of England as its Pope, were stirred up. They hated anything that looked like popery, no matter what its name. And so there was a little bit of a religious revival taking place and a religious rebellion taking place as people were separating themselves from this state church. Henry VIII, around 1534, had laid claim to the headship of the Church of England. It had been the Catholic Church. But when the Pope would not allow him the divorce and remarriage and the divorce and remarriage and the divorce and remarriage and so forth that he wanted, he threw the Pope out from a religious standpoint and became the head of the Catholic Church of England, and it became the Church of England in the 1500s, before your King James Bibles and before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock in 1620. After Henry was Elizabeth, who was really no better. She was the monarch and had complete control of the church. Its monies were raised by taxation, and laws were passed to force you to attend. And if you did not attend one service, you were fined. And if you did not attend for 30 days... You were exiled or killed. It was very serious business. Some Baptists and some of other denominations, including the Church of England, they were called Puritans because they were committed to living a pure life. It was a derogatory term. Puritans. Some Puritans wanted to reform the Church of England, so they stayed in the church. Other Puritans left the church and became known as independents or separatists or brownists or others that you can look about, look up and read about in the history of England. Many of the Puritans stayed in the Church of England. They compromised. They still considered it the Lord's church and they wanted to reform it from the inside. But others were called separatists and came out of it and embraced a congregational form of worship of individual local assemblies. And in America, they became known as Congregationalists. They still baptized babies, but they followed a Baptist-type form of church government. This brought them quickly into conflict with the government. And you can go look up the laws of 1592 and 1583 in England, but these separatists were condemned by the law for having separated not attending the Church of England. They were of the lower middle class, unlike the cultured Puritans of the upper middle class. That's, and why would I even tell you that? Because that matches 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That God's chosen the poor of this world, not the cultured of this world, to be His children. They first of all, in, in the 1590s, to avoid these laws, moved to Holland. Holland had converted wholesale to a Calvinistic form of reformed religion. They weren't Baptists. 
But there was religious freedom there and they weren't persecuted for being separatists and having their own little congregation in Leiden, Holland. They had relative calm and protection there. But they feared that they were going to lose their English culture. They feared they were going to lose their English language living among these people that spoke a different language. And those people knew how to farm and manufacture in the low countries. That's that's because they're below sea level, folks. Um, and those English didn't know how to compete with them very well. So on two grounds, we don't want to lose our English language and we want to find a place that would be more prosperous for us. Let's go to the New World. In 1607, a temporary colony had been started in Jamestown, Virginia, and they aimed for that and arrived a little north at uh, Plymouth Rock. Their GPS wasn't working too well on the transatlantic trip. They were known as pilgrims because now they've moved about three times from England to Holland, from Holland back to England to get investors behind them for two ships, the Mayflower and the Speedwell. The Speedwell only made it partway and had to go back. And then they went from England to America. So they were pilgrims. William Bradford, one of their leaders, first wrote about and described this group, this church that was in Leyden, Holland, that went to England to get shipping to come to America as saints and pilgrims. They knew the Bible. They were pilgrims. Daniel Webster at the bicentennial of the pilgrims landing at Plymouth Rock in 1820, that's 200 years later, called them pilgrim fathers for the first time. They are the fathers of our country in certain ways. And they were the pilgrim fathers because they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. They did not belong in England under England's religious laws. They did not belong in Holland because of Holland's culture. And they came to America and found and established a place and it has influenced all of us. They were not Baptists, but they were quite closely connected to Baptists in several ways. And I'm not going to get into that because it's not important for right now. They suffered on their trip to America. And they suffered severely that first year here in America. They were more than halved. More than half died. It was so bad in that first winter that there were only three or four of them that had enough strength to take care of the 40 or 50 that were still alive. It was terrible. And that's all I want to say about that part of it. Did they go home? The Mayflower was sitting there in the harbor. Did they go home? No, they did not go home. They stayed because they were strangers and pilgrims and they were trusting the providence of God to take care of them and their hopes and aims were on a heavenly country. And while God left them here in this world, they would establish as close of a country to that as they could. And thus the Mayflower Compact and their commitment to follow their leadership and do whatever that leadership said to survive and to please God. I have to ask you another question. We have some more sitting in the, uh, in the stadium of life. How are you running your race in front of our pilgrim fathers? You have never suffered anything in comparison. Hebrews 11.13 says they were strangers and pilgrims. What is a stranger? It's a Bible term. We should understand it. 
The strange woman of the book of Proverbs is a woman that doesn't belong in your bed. She's any woman that you haven't married, really. You know, usually she's under the guise of an adulteress or a harlot in the book of Proverbs, but when the Bible says strange woman, she's a foreigner, she's an alien to you and doesn't belong in your bed. What's the definition of stranger? One who belongs to another country, a foreigner. One who resides in or comes to a country to which he is a foreigner or an alien. That's exactly what we are. I love, when I read you a definition, it's because it's good. And uh, it fits so well. We are foreigners and aliens here in this world because we belong to a different city and a different nation and a different country. A stranger is a person that does not belong to the place where he temporarily resides. Israel had strangers among them after their exodus from Egypt. They were Gentiles that came along with them that didn't have the full rights that the Jews had or the Israelites had, but they were there with them. Paul would combine the word stranger with alien and foreigner, just like the dictionary does in Ephesians chapter 2, when he says that we were strangers and foreigners and aliens from the commonwealth of Israel as Gentiles. All of that is to say, what does the word stranger mean? We don't belong. We're visitors. We belong in another, somewhere else. Our citizenship is elsewhere. Our heritage is elsewhere. Our loyalty is elsewhere. So we're strangers. What is a pilgrim in the Bible? Because the word pilgrims are used here, and it's not referring to 1620 in Plymouth Rock, but it uses the word pilgrims. Pilgrim is one who travels from place to place. A person on a journey. A wayfarer. A traveler. A wanderer. A sojourner. And some of these are Bible words. A wanderer and a sojourner. We believe Bible pilgrimage as traveling or wandering the way the Bible uses that expression. A pilgrimage is primarily traveling or wandering, not necessarily visiting a holy site. We're just we're just pilgrims here because we're just traveling, wandering about without setting down and committing ourselves to this place. No wonder John Bunyan chose the word for his famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress. The Pilgrim's Progress through this life, through this world, to the heavenly country. In the early days of our nation, the four best-selling books in America were the King James Bible. There weren't any others, except for somebody who might ask for the Geneva The NIV hadn't quite made it. The new King James wasn't there. It was the old King James, and the only one they knew was the King James Bible, Pilgrim's Progress by the Baptist John Bunyan, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and McGuffey's Readers, taken from the King James Bible. What is a Bible, stranger and pilgrim? It is a child of God that does not consider his real life or his goals to belong to this earth. That's a Bible, stranger and pilgrim. He is a stranger in the earth because he is a foreigner and alien to other men's lives and the way they live and the philosophy they hold. He does not become attached to things that others find to be their goals and purpose in life. He's a pilgrim in the earth because he's only traveling through this world to get to heaven. And we're supposed to be strangers and pilgrims. We want to be strangers and pilgrims. We have been persuaded 
that there is another country. And it's not North America. There is another country, a heavenly country, where we can prosper in all spiritual ways, and it's heaven. We've been persuaded of the promises concerning it. We have embraced them, and we confess, this world is not my home. This world's people, including unsaved relatives, are not my people. My home is in heaven, and it's heaven's people that are my people. The people of like precious faith. And so whether it be those pilgrims, or whether it be Abraham, Sarah, that left Ur of the Chaldeans to come 500 plus miles into Canaan, we leave the things of this world and what we had established in the way of a profession, what we'd established in the way of a house, friends, assets, connections, networks, all those things we leave for a better network and a better people and a better king and a better priest and a better religion. So we're strangers and pilgrims here. He's a pilgrim on the earth because he's only traveling through it. You know the other Bible word, you're at Hebrews 11, is verse 9. It's the fourth word there, and it's speaking of Abraham. By faith he sojourned. Strangers and pilgrims are sojourners. And I want to just throw this in because you'll find the word sojourn and sojourners in the Bible. To sojourn is to make a temporary stay in a place. To remain or reside there for a time. So it says, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise, moving around in tents with Isaac and Jacob. He did not own enough land for the sole of his foot, according to Acts chapter 7, but he was the friend of God. Let's let's think about some Bible examples of strangers and pilgrims. Abel was a stranger and a pilgrim in this world. The world wasn't very heavily populated. But he did things differently, didn't he? He offered a blood sacrifice of killing to Almighty God, and he and his sacrifice were accepted. Cain offered an offering to the Lord at the right time, the right Lord, the right place, but the wrong kind. And he and his offering were rejected. When you make yourself a follower of the God of heaven, When you choose to follow Christ in this testament, you immediately will find yourself at odds with the world around you. The only way that you can get along with them is because you compromise. Abel would not compromise. His own brother killed him. There has always been conflict between the righteous and the wicked the children of God and the children of the devil, the elect and reprobates. Abel was a stranger and a pilgrim, and he chose to worship God even though it cost him his life. What have you given up? What have I given up? You know, we can think of some things we've given up, but we haven't given up our lives. Enoch was a stranger and a pilgrim because he was different from everyone else. No one else is said in the Bible to have walked with God and God just took him because God was not ashamed to be his God. I can promise you that. God wanted Enoch in heaven with him. And it's a wonderful short statement there in Genesis 5 and then again in Hebrews 11 in verse 5 
that Enoch had this testimony that before he was translated into heaven by direct translation and transportation, he pleased God. That's a stranger and a pilgrim. Everything is to please God. Everything is to magnify God. Everything is to obey God and His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. Noah condemned the world. Hebrews 11 and verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned of things not seen as yet. No one had ever seen a drop of rain. No one had ever seen a rain cloud. And yet Noah made a choice. God told me to build him a 450 foot boat in my backyard. I'll build it. And he did build it. And the rain came. And he condemned the world by his faith. And became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. He proved himself to be one of God's righteous elect. Are you willing to take a stand based on what the Bible tells you, though it will cost you in this world? You can condemn the whole world. Because the world is opposed to God and His ways. And it's getting worse and worse, which means that we are going to be more and more strangers and pilgrims. Abraham and his holy wife, Sarah. I've already mentioned. How about Rebecca? You know... The servant of Abraham tells his story to the family. I'm here to get my master's son a wife. Rebecca's the one. I want to, in the morning, I want to leave. Oh, come on. That is so hasty. Please give us a few days for her to say bye to her family. We can have some parties. At least ten. You heard the reading by Brother Leon. No. It's the Lord's will in the matter. My master's son's been waiting a while. Let me go. Well, we'll ask the damsel herself. Now, this young virgin woman was asked, are you ready to leave or do you want to hang around and do some huggy-poo with your family? I am ready to go. That is a great woman. That That is one of the holy women of the Bible. That's why she's isolated in the Bible and we're told about her when we are told about so few. Rebecca gladly left her mother to join Isaac as a stranger and a pilgrim in the land of Canaan. She had never met Isaac. She had never met Abraham. She didn't know about Isaac except what the servant had said in general terms to her family. But she was ready to go because it was God's will. Lord, help us to be the same way. Joseph was a stranger and a pilgrim in rich Egypt. I want you to think about Joseph. He's reigning in Egypt second only to Pharaoh. He's got the beautiful daughter of the priest of An for his wife. He has two tribes of Israel from her womb. He has riches and power and influence. Do you know all he cared about when he got the nation together at his death? I'm a stranger and a pilgrim in Egypt. You will carry my bones up out of this stinking place and bury them in Canaan. That is a stranger and a pilgrim who won't even let his bones remain in Egypt. What what a man! That was Joseph. These are the heroes of God's Word. I was told to preach this to you. To me. He didn't consider that place his home. Egypt wasn't good enough for his funeral stone, for his cemetery stone. Let me out of this place. I know where God's going to take you in the future. Take my bones. you know how many people He left behind? 
There were hundreds of thousands of Israelites that got buried in the land of Egypt, but not Joseph. Right. Because he showed that he had a different perspective on life. Who would have had the biggest mausoleum or stone in Egypt out of all the children of Israel? Joseph would have. He might have had his own pyramid. Did that interest him? No. We should love Joseph. Moses had it all. Then you read that. You're still at Hebrews 11. Look at verses 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, 40 years old, prime of life for a man that was going to live to be 120, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's grandson. He was great in word and deed among the Egyptians, as Acts chapter 7 tells us. He was a mighty man, famous in Egypt, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That is the choice we all need to make, choosing rather to suffer affliction. And when you choose the people of God as your companions, you will be afflicted because they are the afflicted people on earth than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ to be reproached and to be made fun of, to be ridiculed for following Jesus Christ, he considered that greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He knew that there was a great reward coming that would be the reversal of all fortune. And the rich of this world will be poor as they're cast into the lake of fire. And the poor of this world who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ like Lazarus will be the rich of eternity. And he had respect because he was persuaded of the promises. He had embraced the promises and he confessed this world is not it. My palace bedroom as Pharaoh's mighty renowned grandson is not mine. That does not interest me. Praise the Lord for Moses. How about Ruth? She left all. All of her family. Every single blood relative blew him away in Moab to follow Naomi back into Israel. And boy, the Lord bless her here and hereafter. She's in the Bible, both Testaments, several times, and she is the mother of David and the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ by extension. What an, I hope those words that Mark read eventually to you comforted your hearts, and I hope that you've heard them before. Sometimes I know that they're used at wedding ceremonies, and I know that my mother committed by those words to my father. David had to sojourn many times, wandering among the Philistines to preserve his life, and he missed God's house when he had to do it. Some of the statements you read in the book of Psalms about David longing, thirsting for the house of God was because he had to be a sojourner for a while. He was a stranger and a pilgrim in his marriage to Michael. When he came home from worshiping God the way that God's people worship, and Michael said that he didn't act in a respectful way given his office, he took one look at that blankety blank blank and said, I will be honored in front of all your handmaidens because I'm never going to touch you again. And Saul's family was cut off from the earth. Because right. he was a stranger and a pilgrim. And if you didn't want to do things his way in serving the Lord, then he didn't want to have anything to do with you. 
like we learned recently from Psalm 101. Sometimes it is that close in our own, in our, in marriages where there's a division and the Lord brings a sword down between a husband and a wife, between children and parents, between a sibling and their siblings. David shows us how to do it. Daniel in Babylon, he didn't look for comfort. He didn't look for ease, popularity, or success. He just kept obeying and praying. He obeyed in chapter 1 by not taking the king's portion of pagan profane meat and drink. And he obeyed in chapter 6 by praying anyway against the king's decree. Because he was a stranger and a pilgrim here. Do you know how we know that he, he understood that he was a stranger and a pilgrim? Because three times a day, he would go to his window and throw open the window and kneel down and pray toward Jerusalem, though it was a leveled city. He prayed toward that place where God had been worshipped on earth. Do you think he was seeking a heavenly country? Did he give us the only timed prophecy of the arrival of Messiah? Yes. How about Anna? When we get to Luke chapter 2, Anna was a stranger to life's comforts and a pilgrim to the temple. How often? Daily. For how long? 80 years. Giving herself to fasting and prayer. That is a stranger and a pilgrim. How often do you pray? Jesus demoted his natural family. Jesus was out in the city. He was tapped in the shoulder and said, your mother and brethren want to see you. What are you talking about? Who are my mother and my brethren? Then he showed them the audience that were listening to his preaching. These are my mothers and my brethren. Jesus said he had no place for his head, even though foxes have holes and birds have nests. Was Jesus a stranger and a pilgrim in this world? Yes. He endured the cross and despised its shame. Paul flushed everything for the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't care about his sister. He didn't care about his sister's son, who was his nephew that saved his life in the latter chapters of Acts. Because he said this, to depart and to be with Christ is far better. Well, this is Paul, Philippians chapter 1, 22 through 24. Well, I think I'll hang around a little while because it's needful for me to help you, the Philippian church. Nothing about family, places, esteem, profession, money, popular, nothing just to serve the Lord's people. What about the martyrs? Stephen, you gave us a whole year of martyrs in 2014. What about the martyrs? Were they strangers and pilgrims in the earth? They didn't care about leaving this life because they knew they would be with the Lord. What about William Screven and the 28 members of his Baptist church from Kittery, Maine that left all for Charleston, South Carolina in 1690? What about him? The Congregational Church was the state church of Maine. He was persecuted for preaching against infant baptism. So he and his 20, the 28 members of his church were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. They came down to Charlestown and established 
the Antipato Baptist Church of Christ. Brother Henry, Antipato means no children. Baptist Church of Christ. They made a strong statement. You know, those were strangers and pilgrims in the earth, and we want to be like them. How about this little girl? Sarah Pierpont. Say, who in the world is Sarah Pierpont? The wife of Jonathan Edwards. And I'm thankful for running into this essay about her. For you to understand the intelligence of the man that wrote the essay, at 12, he was attending Yale. At 19, he wrote this about a 13-year-old girl. And all you young men, and all you married men, you should be helping your wife be like this. To whatever it's worth to you, I read you a short essay written by Jonathan Edwards at 19 about Sarah Pierpont, who was 13, and he got to marry her three years later, and they had 11 children, and she was a pastor's wife. They say there is a young lady in New Haven. That's a town of Connecticut. They say there is a young lady in New Haven who is beloved of that great being who made and rules the world. And that there are certain seasons in which this great being, in some way or other invisible, comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight. And that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on Him. That she expects, after a while, to be received up where He is, to be raised up out of the world and caught up into heaven being assured that he loves her too well to let her remain at a distance from him always. There she is to dwell with him and to be ravished with his love and delight forever. Therefore, if you present all the world before her with the richest of its treasures, she disregards it and cares not for it and is unmindful of any pain or affliction. She has a strange sweetness in her mind and singular purity in her affections, is most just and conscientious in all her conduct. And you could not persuade her to do anything wrong or sinful if you would give her all the world, lest she should offend this great being. She is of a wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence of mind especially after this great God has manifested Himself to her mind. She will sometimes go about from place to place singing sweetly and seems to be always full of joy and pleasure. and No one knows for what. She loves to be alone, walking in the fields and groves and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. You say, well, that's just written by some guy who was infatuated with her. Guys that are infatuated with girls typically don't write essays like that. And then she lived an entire life that backed up every sentence of that essay. And you can go read about her if you want. She's outside Scripture. I just wanted to give you some other examples of strangers and pilgrims in the earth. When her husband was thrown out of his church by a vote of 220 because he had criticized 
some young teenage boys, children of rich members, for having looked at a midwife's manual and used it as porn, she went and lived among the Indians with him for seven years. 1 Peter chapter 2. Oh Lord, Lord, persuade us. Persuade us today by Your promises, by Your examples, by Your exhortations in Scripture. And cause us by Your Holy Spirit to embrace them. And then to confess and to declare by our confession, this world is not my home. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. Dearly beloved, the Apostle Peter addresses you, I address you, and God the Holy Spirit addresses you. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter wrote elect Jewish Christians as spiritual strangers and pilgrims in the earth in these two verses. He besought them, which means to supplicate or to entreat or to implore. It means to beg them. He's begging you. I'm begging you. The Lord's begging you. Consider these things. You're a stranger and a pilgrim. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Fleshly lusts are not just getting drunk. Fleshly lusts are not just committing adultery. Fleshly lusts are loving the things and the people and the practices and the philosophy of this world more than you should. Let's be strangers and pilgrims. The time is coming when the lines of demarcation between us and the world are going to get wider and wider and that chasm is going to result in greater persecution, reproach, and ridicule. Are we ready for it? The time is coming where you're going to depart this world to be with Christ. Hopefully. Are you ready for it? Are you living like it? Is God ashamed to be your God? Or is He not ashamed to be your God? Does He have a city built for you? Or do you, are you not a citizen of that city? We know by the priorities we set in putting God in heaven above anyone else and anything else and any place else. That's why Asaph would write in Psalm 73, 25 and 26, Whom have I in heaven or in earth beside thee? Abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. What is warring against your soul? What is warring against my soul? Hear the call of the Word of God. What lusts are you playing with? What earthly attachments are troubling you and keeping you from being the hero of the faith like Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and the rest? It says, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. There is a war for your soul to keep you from being a stranger and a pilgrim. Because the world wants to embrace you and pull you in. 
And it does it in all sorts of ways for different ones of us, depending on what buttons we have. Because the devil knows your buttons, and the Lord knows your buttons, and he allows those buttons to be pushed to see if we love him enough to flush what's ever under the button. Are you fighting this war as you should? Are you getting rid of all fleshly lust so that Christ is your all in all? That heaven is your goal? That living a heavenly life is your ambition? It is our duty, it's our privilege to live exemplary lives to glorify God to His elect people. Look at this 12th verse. Let's abstain from fleshly lusts, everything that attracts us and our flesh here in this world. Let's abstain from all those things because they war against our soul. And opposite of that, Let's have our conversation, that means our lifestyle, honest, and it means a whole lot more than telling the truth. Honest here means godly and pure, as I taught you when we went through this passage a few months ago. Having your lifestyle, your conduct, your conversation, honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, and they will because we're going to be different from them. When we're a stranger and a pilgrim, they don't like that. They want us to jump in with them. They do not want us thinking differently, acting differently, or preaching differently. So they're going to accuse us of being evildoers. Let's give them nothing to see. They may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. The day of visitation is when God comes to visit His elect and gives them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. They remember that they had a great example of a Christian in their life that they didn't even know about until God visited them. This isn't the world. The world never understands it this way. The world is never visited by God. These are God's people. Strangers and pilgrims in the earth. I'll finish it after our break. I had more to say than I thought. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. And may you remember these words. Though Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah saw the fulfillment of God's promises afar off. They are not far off to us. We're already on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ by two millennia. Let us be persuaded. As a church, let us be persuaded that the promises of this Bible are absolutely true. Let us embrace them and love them that we have the best of all worlds We have the best of all lives to believe and love and live for those things. And let us confess and show it and declare it by the way we live that the things, the people, the places, the practices, the pleasures, the entertainment, the style of this life is not ours. But that we're Christ and His and we're Christ's people and theirs. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go in to the house of the Lord. Amen Amen and amen.